Father, we thank you so much for your generosity to us. Lord, in Sunday school, we were talking about how the Trinity just shows and cries out your generosity as you, Father, Son, and Spirit, loved each other eternally for all time past, before there even was time. You are loving. You did not need to make us in order to have something to love, in order to find out what love was. You are love. And you are so generous to us in so many ways. And of course, the clearest is the gospel. Of course, Lord, the clearest is what we're seeing now in John. The willingness that the Son of God has to go to the cross on our behalf. In order to save us, that we might be adopted, that we might be called sons of God. And so, Father, I just thank you for your word. The hope that it brings to us the light in this world that Christ is to us. We praise you for that, Lord. I pray I would faithfully preach what is in the text. I pray that everyone that you have brought here, Lord, would faithfully and carefully listen, that we would all apply your word to our hearts, that it would sink down into us, and that we might become like Christ. I pray for those who are here this morning, Father, who aren't trusting in you who don't know You as their Lord, who do not know You as their Savior, Father, I pray that today they would listen and they would see the beauty and the hope and the life, the only life that can be found in Jesus today. In Christ's name, Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John 13. John 13, we're going to look this morning at verses 21 through 30. John 13, 21 through 30. So last week, we started the final buildup to the cross here in verse 13. And you remember, we talked about how in previous chapters, the way the story would go is there'd be a miraculous sign that would happen, or there would be, there would be this miracle that would take place, and then there would be teaching after it to unpack it. But that the order in John 13 up through the cross is actually switched, and we get many explanations. We get the unpacking before the sign happens. So last week we saw Jesus wash the feet of his disciples and show us that he, the Son of God, the eternal Word, he was willing to serve his people. And in fact, he had to serve us in order for us to be cleansed. Of course, setting us up for the cross, right? He must serve in order for us to be cleansed. So this week, we can see the next piece here, and it's dark. It's heavy. It's also really confusing for almost everybody who's involved actually in the story. There's one person who understood almost all of it. There were two people who had the, un the chance to understand most of it, but couldn't. And then there's Jesus. And what we see is that Jesus understood all of this. As we head to the cross, as we see all of these events unfold, here today the enemy really gets his feet under him. He gets his foundation to attack the Lord here. This is what he needed. He needed an insider. But what does John show us in our passage today? I want you to see this even as we read it. 
that Jesus was in charge even over his own betrayal. So let's see that. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the story in four parts today. First, we're going to look at a surprising declaration. A surprising declaration. There is an outline in the bulletin if you want to follow along there. So this happens right after the foot washing that we saw. You could imagine, just from the foot washing, I think you should imagine that the disciples are already feeling just totally off kilter here. They're trying to understand seeing their leader act like a slave and then challenging them to live the same way. So they're right in the middle of just trying to understand what just happened, like what is this all about? This is clearly not a typical Passover meal possibly like the ones that they had celebrated before. And now, John tells us that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So after he did this, and after he, he washed the feet, and he got dressed again, and he sat back down, and he told them that they were going to have to follow his example. He's troubled in his spirit. And we've seen him troubled in his spirit before, but I like how Leon Morris describes Jesus here. He says, a very human Jesus is described as troubled in spirit. Though John pictures Jesus as in control of the situation, he does not let us think of him as unmoved by the events through which he was passing. So it really is, Christian, for us, it is a joy and a comfort to see the emotion that Jesus has in this section. He's not, he's not cold. He's not just here going through the motions that he's, he needs to go through, is he? That's not what Jesus is doing in this build-up to the cross. He's not just, I'm doing what has to be done. He's troubled. We saw last week his love at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 13, his willingness to serve, that he loved his disciples and he would love them till the end. Love is what is motivating him. Now, we talked about this in Sunday school. We, we looked at some questions, and one of them was, how do we answer why is God love? And the Trinity actually provides that answer for us. Jesus says in John 17 that it's the love the Father had with him before time even began that he's sharing here. They are The, the Trinity overflows with love towards one another. And it's that love 
that drives this sacrifice. Because love isn't just an emotion. Love is not just a feeling. Love is not just a a pitter-patter in our heart or butterflies in our stomach. That's not the way that Scripture describes love. Love is a sacrificial, self-serving for the good of someone else. By this we know love, that Christ laid down His life for us. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things. It hopes all things. Love is more than just some sort of weird, amorphous emotion that excuses whatever behavior you want to do. Love, flowing from God, is a pure, generous, caring. And Jesus is motivated here by love and He's troubled in spirit. So make sure that you see Jesus here. Not cold. Not cold at all. The need for His sacrifice, though, is is clearly shown. Remember the last time He was troubled. Saying, what should I say then? What should I say? Well, He can't say, and we saw this. He can't say, Father, just let this pass from me. I mean, he could. It wouldn't, it wouldn't change him. He has all rights to God. He is the Son. But if he doesn't do this, you and I, we have no hope. If he doesn't do this, you and I, we have nothing. And we see that on display right here, the need for sacrifice. Even among his own disciples, there is going to be one who betrays him. Even among his inner circle, those who have lived with him and listened to him, It's hard to imagine that one of the twelve could betray Jesus, but that's the thing about betrayal, right? Betrayal is always hard to imagine. And so the disciples here, they look around at each other. Who could this be? This had to have been a really tense and awkward moment, you know? What does he even mean, betrayal? So I want you to think about that. What does he even mean, betrayal? Because you and I know what he means. Because we're looking at this after it happens, right? So we know that what he means is that somebody's going to betray him to the Jewish leadership and ultimately he's going to be killed for this. That's what he means by betrayal. But imagine in this moment, the confusion. What does he mean? Who's going to do this? When are they going to betray him? Matthew tells us that the disciples all wondered in this moment whether they were the one that Jesus was talking about. Is it me? (laughs) Am I the one who's going to betray you? I mean, that's how clueless they were. That that, that clues us in as well that perhaps they were thinking about someday far in the future. They were thinking that this was something like, one day, one of you is going to betray me. So they, could it be me? But of course, that's not what Jesus means at all, right? He doesn't mean one day. He means now. The betrayer is with them now. But there's a few things for you and I to to stop and think about here. As Jesus makes this surprising declaration. One, it is not enough to be around Jesus and to act like his follower. It's not enough just to be around Jesus and act like his follower, is it? Listen to James Boyce here. Judas had been in the company of the twelve and had been instructed by Jesus. 
He had heard the Beatitudes. He had heard the Sermon on the Mount and the parables. Judas had heard all the other teachings. Indeed, he had been given on-the-field experience because when the twelve and the seventy were sent out, Judas was undoubtedly among them. Besides all that, Judas had seen a perfect example of all the Lord was teaching during the three-year ministry. When the Lord said, Blessed are the meek, Judas saw perfect meekness in him. When Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, he saw the perfect peacemaker. When the Lord said, Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, he saw that holiness. Above all, Jesus was filled with the love of God. Judas saw all of that and yet was unsaved. This is why the gospel is about a totally new heart, a totally new creation. This shows us just what the human heart is capable of. Even when that heart is surrounded by the best influences possible, you can't get better peer pressure than living with Jesus for years. What is the human heart capable of? Living in that setting for years and still worshiping itself, still rejecting God. That's a warning to us, isn't it? Just because we're in the right setting does not save us or cleanse our hearts. Just because you have the right parents, the right spouse, the right friends, the right pastor, none of that by itself means that you are saved. Nobody could have been in a better position than Judas. And yet, we see what his heart is capable of. What also does that do? It doesn't just remind us that just because we're here, it's not enough to just be around Jesus and act like His follower. This reminds us again, we are 100% totally dependent upon God for our salvation. This is what it is to be dead. And we need the love of God to come in and transform us. We need to rely totally upon Christ. It's a hard thing to think about. But it's not always easy to tell who God's children are, is it? I'm sure we all, if you've been a Christian for any time at all, you, you have in your mind somebody. I mean, for a period you were sure. But now how could you be sure? As they seem to have rejected everything that they once did. This is hard to think about. But Judas had already been deceiving his fellow disciples here. What do you and I do with that? Well, we need to know it's possible, first and foremost. We need to know it's possible. The human heart is capable of incredible betrayal and deception. We need to understand what sin is capable of doing in our hearts and in others. 
And if you hear that, and you think about it in the context of the church, and, or you think about it in the context of your family or, or your marriage, and, and you just want to throw up your hands, and, and it kind of just makes you want to say, well, what do we do then if we can't trust people? What do we do then? The disciples, we already knew that there was something up with Judas because we've been seeing this happen. We have the narrator's viewpoint here. The disciples didn't see this. They didn't know. To them, this was the ultimate betrayal and they didn't even realize it was happening yet. Well, what can we do if we can't trust people? Here's what we do. First, we trust Jesus above everyone else. We ask, who will not ever fail us? Who always, always has our best interest at heart? Who is always capable of doing His will? Jesus. The only one who fully deserves our complete, absolute, undivided trust is Jesus, right? So we must trust Him. We must trust that He's even in control of our situation. He's even in control over those who may betray their trust with us. So we trust in Jesus first. He is Lord over this life. He is King of Kings, correct? He has said to call Him Emmanuel, God with us. He told His disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Trust me. And so, we trust Him. And then, based off of our trust in Him, we are called to trust people. You have to. We can't live without trusting others, can we? I mean, you think about the relationships in Scripture. Uh, three, the three that pop out in my mind are children and parents, elders and church, husbands and wives. There is a command there of trusting. It cannot happen if we cannot give trust. But it's really hard. When you've been betrayed, it is really hard to trust others. There's a real struggle in us to know the capability of the human heart, to know what people can do, and then still be able to extend trust to people. But we have to. What I want us to see is that when you do that, when you extend trust to somebody, ultimately, your trust is actually in Jesus. When we get that confused and we put the measure of trust on a person that ought to be on Jesus, that's when it can break things. But when we extend trust to somebody, who we are really trusting in is Jesus first and foremost. Wives, when you trust your husband, you are trusting Jesus. Children, when you are trusting your parents, as they tell you to obey them, you are to be trusting in God with your elders in the church. I am fully capable of failing all of you. You trust in the Lord. You put the weight of your trust in Christ. And there's a reason why even from this story, 
Look at this. Here, in the greatest of betrayals that ever happened, what is John showing us? Jesus is not losing control of the ship here. Jesus is not going, oh my goodness, Judas, I did not see this coming. Even here, Jesus is Lord over this situation. Why would it not be the case that Jesus is Lord over your situation? Of course He is. We trust in Him as we go through this life. Nothing, not even broken trust, can separate us from the love of God. And that's a beautiful thing. Now, after the surprising declaration, we see here, John tells us something that happens. Peter looks over at the beloved disciple and motions to him to ask Jesus who this is. Now, the beloved disciple is certainly John. Here's an interesting note, though. At a dinner like this, the one who sits to the right of the host, this side, he has the most honored position, and the one who sits to the left has the second most honored. It's interesting to note, Peter doesn't have either one of those places in this story. Um, commentators speculate that it's very possible Judas had the right-hand place as he dipped and shared the morsel with Jesus, but we don't know that. But John is sitting here where he's able to just lean back like this, and he's able to speak to Jesus. And so, so Peter, he's not there. He can't, he can't do that. And so in a surprising twist of subtlety, instead of Peter just yelling out, he motions to John. He's like, ask him. Ask So he leans back close to Jesus, and he asks, who is it? Now, given what happens after this, most commentators argue, and, and I think they, they've got to be right, that this conversation between John and Jesus was probably not something that everybody at the table heard. Again, there's a picture of closeness here and intimacy. This is why Peter didn't ask it. The way that they're, they're, the way that they're reclining, I, know, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I'm like, the way that they're reclining, John is able to, to lean back and be right next to Jesus, almost in his ear, to ask him who this is. And so it's very likely that this was something that just passed between Jesus, John, Judas, and Peter watching, which could explain a lot of the confusion that, that happens next. So we have the surprising declaration, but now we've got the reveal. That's the second thing, the reveal. There's a, there is a betrayer. And we had to think about that. What does it mean that there's a betrayer and this trust is broken? But now there's a reveal. Jesus tells John, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So he dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now there's something here because you have to wonder, why didn't Jesus just go, Judas? Dun, dun, dun. Why instead did he go, the person I give this to? Again, that sort of reinforces this wasn't a public sort of just massive clear, clear announcement of exactly who it was 
that, that, that um, was betraying him. The plan has to go through, right? I mean, Judas may already have his plans to deliver Jesus over to the Jewish leaders, but Jesus has his own plan. And it has to go through. Judas has to walk out of this dinner into the night in just a few minutes to fulfill his plan. He, Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, they're working together here. And Judas, frankly, has to succeed in his betrayal. So perhaps instead of drawing attention to this and explaining clearly and going, guys, 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 teaching moment, Judas is about to betray us. Instead of doing that, we have this symbolic gesture and the confusion that comes after it. But look at what happens in this moment when the reveal takes place. Verse 7, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. That's a, that's a shocking moment. Satan enters into him. Could there be, I think, a helpful illustration from Job here? You know the story of Job. Job is living his life as a righteous man down there. He's doing very well. The Lord is looking down on the earth, and Satan comes to the Lord, and he longs to attack Job. God says, you see my servant Job down there? And essentially Satan says, well, yeah, of course he's righteous. He's got everything. What did Satan need? in order to attack Job. Permission. He needed permission. He needed God to allow him the freedom to do this. And God even set parameters around what Satan could do to Job. And so we saw there this authority that was taking place. In our story, John shows us a Jesus Christ who is in total control of what's happening here. He knows all about Judas already. We've already seen this. He knows about Judas, a willing soul for Satan to use. With that in mind, is it possible that once Jesus has symbolically called Judas out as the betrayer here, now Satan can enter him and drive him towards his inevitable end? In fact, John seems to be playing with words again here in verse 7. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Who's him? Well, it could be Judas. It could be Satan. This reminds us of two things. There is a great spiritual evil at work in the world. An active, intelligent and malevolent evil. That's the first thing. Second, that evil, Satan, the adversary, hates God with an irrational hatred. It's irrational. He knows God. He knows, I mean, he's got great theology. But what else could it be when you must get permission from God to act against God and yet you believe that your actions can overthrow God? That's one of the questions I had when I read Job. Like, how does it make sense that you would think 
I have to get permission from him to do this. And yet I can overthrow him with this. There's an irrational hatred here to think I get, I've got to get permission to kill Jesus. But that'll do him in because he's going to let me do it. That doesn't make sense at all. It's a, it's, a, it's a little like, you know, a child railing against their dad in their dad's house, wearing clothes that their dad bought them, fed on food that their dad gave them. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's, it's, it's irrational. But you and I, we can't discount Satan's power. Judas did not have the control. He did not have the cunning that he thought he did, did he? That's one of the things we see here about Judas. Judas thought that he was, he was in control, that he was working for his own ends. You and I do not have the control that we think we do. Even when we set ourselves against God, we don't have the control that we think we do. No, like Satan, Judas believed the absurd. He didn't believe what was right in front of his eyes, and he thought he could bring Jesus down, that he could make some money off of Jesus, and that would be more valuable than what Jesus had been doing. Could you imagine? Could you imagine seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and then going, you know what I ought to get from this? 30 pieces of silver by turning him in. That's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. And of course, Judas ended up dead in a field for his efforts. But you and I have to see, are you at all living in an irrational way like this? Are there ways that you might be like Judas, setting yourself against God? Please see the futility of it. It won't work. So the big reveal isn't just about Judas. The big reveal is also about Satan here. About recognizing that there are powers at work here in this moment at the cross. This is not just man setting himself against God. This is the ruler of this world as well. All right. So, surprising declaration, big reveal. It leads to confusion. That's our third point. Confusion. Surprising declaration, reveal, confusion. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to them, to him. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. So they were trying to make sense of it in ways that fit their understanding. Maybe they're thinking, maybe he's telling Judas to go get more for the feast, right? Remember, when we talk about a feast, we don't just, <clears throat> we don't just talk about a meal, uh, in John, we've never just talked about a meal when we talked about a feast. We talked about the Feast of Booths. We talked about the Passover feast. We're talking about the whole week, the whole enchilada here. So when he says going out and get more for the feast, there's more Passover stuff to do. So maybe he's saying, hey, you need to go out and you need to get more for us for the rest of the Passover feast. Maybe that's what happened. Or maybe during the Passover on this particular night, the, the poor were allowed to come to the gate and allowed to, to beg for alms. Maybe... They, he's saying, Judas, why don't you go down to the gate and you give to the poor? Because that's something that you do on this night. What are the disciples trying to do? They're trying to fit Jesus' teaching into something that makes sense in their minds. Because what it really is doesn't make any sense to them. 
So this is just confusion. Now, of course, we know that last one, Judas taking money to give to the poor, we know that couldn't be true. But they don't know that. And this is what people do. And this is what the disciples are doing. We try and rationalize things and we try and fit them so that they make sense. It actually takes a lot for us to believe the worst is going to happen. And so we sit here and we read the Gospels and we think, how could the disciples not pick up on his clues? They're everywhere. Are they blind? Yes, they are, actually. (laughs) That's part of why Jesus is coming to the cross. They're not going to see this until after it happens. But think about it. How could anything be wrong? They're sitting together with Jesus having a Passover meal. He just raised somebody from the dead. How could anything go wrong? And that one of them would try and have Jesus arrested and killed? That's ridiculous. But it's true, isn't it? To them, the whole world is about to be turned upside down. If if your world has ever been turned upside down, you probably have a feeling for what the disciples are about to go through. They don't know it yet. But their whole world is about, one of their own is actually about to betray Jesus and all of them. And he's going to succeed. And Jesus is going to be arrested right in front of them. And then he's going to go through these trials. And then he's going to be taken up. He's going to be put on a cross. He's going to be hung. He's going to be stabbed in the side. They're not going to feel the betrayal tonight as it's happening, as we're watching it. They're not feeling it. But very soon, everything about their lives is going to be thrown in utter confusion. They won't know what's happening. They won't know up from down. Peter is going to actually tell people he doesn't know who Jesus is. That's crazy. It's irrational. But that's what happens. And you know what? This is what you have to see. Despite that feeling, Despite the fact that Judas is about to betray him and the disciples are about to be thrown up in the air and tossed around like rag dolls, Jesus never lost control of the plan God had. That's what we have to see. His eyes are fixed on the plan that God had for salvation. Our final point, into the night. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. There's no doubt that symbolism on John's part. You don't have to wonder. I think about what we just heard a few chapters before this in John chapter 11, verse 9. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is Judas stumbling in the night, plotting against his rabbi, focused entirely on himself. But this is more than just that. What have we learned about Jesus in this book? Who is Jesus? We read in chapter 1, in him was life, and that life was the light 
of men. Later on, Jesus Himself says, I am the light of the world. And here, Judas is in the presence of the lights. He's been living with Him. He's been traveling. He's been serving with the light. And now He turns away from the light and He goes into the night. He's exactly the person that we heard about in John chapter 3. The one who chooses darkness over light. And when he leaves this party, it's definitely foreboding. Don't forget that Jesus was troubled at the beginning of this. And with Judas, we see the depths of sin on display. How can it be that someone could live with the light and turn away from it? Guys, the answer to that question is sin does exactly that. We must have Christ. Christian, if you have someone that you know that you long to see come to Christ and see the light, the only thing that is going to get them there is Christ. Our weapon is Jesus revealed in Scripture. Because the human heart is so capable of evil and bent towards darkness that Judas can live with Jesus and reject Him. We have to throw ourselves on Christ. And we have to plead to God for others. You and I cannot save another soul apart from God at work in their heart. You and I, it doesn't matter how articulate you could be in talking about the things of God. You're not as articulate as Jesus was. It doesn't matter how wonderfully you live your light as a light, your life as a light. It doesn't matter how great you are at being salt and light in this world. You'll never do that as well as Jesus did it. The only thing that's going to save those that we love is Christ, revealed in Scripture. So, my challenge to you, obviously, would be proclaim the excellencies of Christ. How can they hear unless someone speaks? My challenge to you would be live like Christ in front of them and explain to them why. But my real challenge from the passage today is pray for them. Pray to the Lord for them. Trust in the Lord for them. When you see Judas, you see it is a miracle that any of us were made alive in Christ. In fact, if you were to look down, you would see that Jesus was in control over Judas. He knows who he has chosen. Pray. Our hope is in Christ alone, even for the salvation of our loved ones. Do you pray for them? 
Do you intercede and ask that the Spirit would come, the wings of the gospel? When it came to the moment that Judas knew his sin was exposed to the Lord, he ran away. James Boyce says Jesus is the light. So the converse is that to leave Christ's presence is to go into the darkness. And not just the darkness of physical night, but spiritual darkness, which means death and damnation. Can we stop and consider that for a minute? Are you tempted to go into the night? Are you tempted to walk away from Christ? Maybe you're here this morning and you're tempted to walk away from Christ. When your sin is exposed to the Lord, Christians, we know how hard it can be to have our sins exposed. What do we want to do? We want to run away. We want to, we want to hide them in the darkness. There's no defense that we can give. Are you tempted to go into the night? No. No. Come to Christ. Come to Him. Draw closer. Trust in Him. With your sins, they're forgiven in Christ. Don't, don't, don't drag your sins into the night because that's irrational too. That's irra as irrational as Satan going, once I get permission from God, I'll finally overthrow him. It's just as irrational to say, I'm going to take my sins and hide them over here because God can't see them there when he can. Judas, out of everybody in all of history, with Satan in him, think about this, Judas, with Satan in him, out of everyone in all of history, probably had the best chance to bring Jesus down. Best chance you're going to get. And we saw what happened. So I urge you, don't go into that night. Come to Christ. Lead others to Him so that they can see the light as you proclaim the gospel and live it out. And don't forget who Jesus is. Even going to the cross, even betrayed, He is still Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for this passage. Lord, and there's a lot in here to think about. And John just, Lord, when, when you inspired him to write this gospel, he, he just put so much in here. Lord, it is hard to, to understand the balance here of Judas going out, betraying, and yet Jesus also being Lord over this. But Father, our hope and our, our comfort is in who Jesus is. And so I pray that we would trust Him. I pray that, Lord, when we are tempted to go into the night, we would come running to Jesus as fast as possible, like a child running to their father for hope and protection. We would come running to Him, Lord. We wouldn't trust our hearts. We would trust Christ's heart and His love and His Word. Lord, that we would find the hope and the salvation there that He won for us because He would not be turned aside from the great work of redemption. 
And it's in Christ's name we pray for your glory and for our eternal good. Amen.